kind of you're talking about the working class, which has been battered and bruised, that we need to stop just being complacent with crumbs. Can you kind of talk about what you mean by, you know, the only limit is, is what we put on ourselves? When I hear the phrase, live to fight another day, I want to literally beat the shit out of somebody. We had that embedded in our brains as workers coming through over the years. And it would drive me up a wall when I would hear a leader say, live to fight another day. Another day came and went over and over and no one fought. And so our, this is our time. This is our, we call this our generation defining moment. This is it. And so, you know, and, and when, we, when I talk about not having limits, you know, throughout my campaign running for this job, and, and even since then, when we're talking about our issues, when we put our demands out there, I can't tell you how many people would say, you know, oh, you'll never get cost of living back. That's a thing of the past. You'll never, why are you fighting for pensions? We'll never see a pension. And all I heard is what we can't do. And our, unfortunately, that was driven by a leadership that had a can't do mentality, settling for the bare minimum. Both GM and Stellantis have rejected our profit sharing proposals. And both companies have rejected our proposals to convert temps. So today, at noon Eastern Time, all of the parts distribution facilities at General Motors and Stellantis are being called to stand up and strike. We will be striking 38 locations across 20 states, across all nine regions of the UAW. At General Motors, we call on the CCAs at Pontiac, Willow Run, Ypsilanti, Davison Road, Flint, Lansing, Cincinnati, Denver, Hudson, Wisconsin, Chicago, Reno, Rancho Cucamonga, Fort Worth, Martinsburg, Jackson, everybody to a very special episode of your favorite labor podcast work stoppage my name is john i'm dan and joining us this week while lena is away is our good friend ethan say hello to the audience ethan hey everybody glad to be back let's see long time listener third time caller hell yeah <laughs> that's right definitely definitely taking the uh the number one pedestal spot for most often recurring guest host uh, and I guess I should do the rest of the intro. We're an entirely listener-supported show, so support us on Patreon if you want to help us out. It really does go a long way. Hop in the Discord if you're not in there already. It's where you can find a reading group that is hosted on Tuesdays now, I believe. More info in the Discord. And if you need some stickers, just message us on Patreon. I have received your requests. I'm walking over to the post office this afternoon. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. I'm not even sure it matters at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, just anywhere you can find. But uh, we want to start this uh, week with a follow-up from last week. We, we talked last week about the disappointing decision by a couple 
don't know if major stars is necessarily the correct term at this point, but very famous people in, in Hollywood to try and bring back their talk shows uh, in the middle of, you know, the ongoing writers and actors strike uh, all across the country. And one of the people we primarily were talking about was Drew Barrymore, who was planning to bring back her talk show with a weird justification that it was somehow not strike breaking, even though it very obviously was. <laughs> and then not really backing up the idea that they genuinely thought they weren't strike breaking when they, the show's producers threw audience members who were wearing WGA pins out of the audience. <laughs> not a thing I would think you would do if you genuinely thought you weren't crossing the picket line. <laughs> um, but thankfully, the reason that we are following up on this story this week is that we have good news, and that good news is that bullying works. <laughs> as, as we had all hoped, massive social pressure by workers across the country excoriating Barrymore for crossing the picket line and being a scab uh, forced Drew Barrymore to announce this week that she will reverse course, that she will not bring her show back in violation of the strike, and she will keep it shut down until the strikes end. And the couple of episodes that they taped last week uh, while crossing the WGA pickets will not air until after the strikes are over. Got her ass. This this also came after uh, one of the the, uh, responses to her move was that she had been slated to host the National Book Awards, and as soon as it became clear that her show was crossing the picket line of, again, the Writers Guild of America, the National Book Awards was very quickly like, oh, well, yeah, you can't host anymore because you know, it's like it's the same people. So like, why would we? What are you doing? <laughs> and so, you know, announcing her decision not to bring the show back, uh, Drew Barrymore made this like sort of like tearful apology video on Instagram uh, saying, quote, I've listened to everyone and I'm making the decision to pause the show's premiere until the strike is over. I have no words to express my deepest apologies to anyone I have hurt, and of course, to our incredible team who work on the show and has made it what it is today. We really tried to find our way forward, and I truly hope for a resolution for the entire industry very soon. End quote. Okay. Started out a little bit strong. There was some good stuff in there at the beginning, but by the end, you start to get the sense that she is kind of like, uh, I still feel like I'm totally above this, but I understand that you guys are going to fuck me up if I don't do what you're asking of me. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Like, like look, I, look, it's better that this is the result than, you know, that she just continued to plow forward and keep mm-hmm. the show going. But I'm really not sure. Like, it definitely seems more like it's like, I can't believe everyone was so mad more than really an understanding of, why everyone was so mad yeah it's more of like i'm sorry you were offended right not a lot of contrition happening there (laughs) yeah some somebody i did somebody did point out online that um with her video and then a bunch of other of these celebrity apology videos that have come out recently rich people all seem to have like a normal person room in their house Mm -hmm. that they always record these in (laughs) yeah that's where their butler usually lives That's right. I'm in the servant. I got to go into the servants' quarters to record this so that people think I'm not just ludicrously out of touch. Well, and it's funny because you'll watch you'll watch rich people like like show off their homes and stuff, and they'll be really proud of the fact that like, oh yeah, this is a 18th century servants' quarters. We just mostly (laughs) use it for parties now. We store Christmas (laughs) decorations down there or whatever. It's like that's not cool. (laughs) Or it's Nancy Pelosi like showing you her like fridge full of twelve thousand dollars worth of ice cream. My ice cream (laughs) fridge is in the servants' quarter. Yeah, I've never wanted to steal one discreet object from a rich person's house so bad. 
<laughs> yeah, well, one of the other things that's been pretty wild is that not only did, you know, Drew Barrymore reverse course, but the part I was actually more shocked about was the fact that Bill Maher even agreed not to bring back his show. Now, granted, the best part of this isn't even necessarily that Bill Maher agreed not to cross a picket line, but that we will have less Bill Maher on television, which is, <laughs> mm -hmm. of course, the important thing for I everyone. I mean, I was really looking forward. Like, we really need his voice to let us know <laughs> if it's okay to say the N-word if you're talking about, like, Muslim people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or, or we like... We need an answer to that question, and his show is the only place to get it. Yeah. I mean, where else are guys who make truck rant videos wearing the shittiest and way too small pair of Oakleys that you've ever seen? Where are they going to get their, you know, important, up-to-date opinions on gender Yeah, and by somebody like Bill Maher? If Bill Maher's not on television, how are Republicans going to have that one Democrat on TV that they like? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, like this is one of those things where it's like, yeah, look, I'm glad that Bill Maher reversed course, but also, like, I don't know, his show is is terrible. And like, yeah. It shouldn't well, exist anyway. <laughs> here's the thing. It's like, I'm looking forward to going back to not thinking or knowing anything about the Drew Mary Barrymore show. That's fine. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, like, bear it any ill will. Like, I don't right. hate that it exists. I hope that real time never, ever comes back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, new rule, the unions get to publicly execute me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Finally, the one good episode of the show. <laughs> the very last one. But um, And in addition to uh, those two programs, the Jennifer Hudson Show, which is another talk show I had no idea existed until just now. What <laughs> network is that on? Also announced they would not be returning as planned until the end of the strike after the backlash against Drew Barrymore. Now, I will say that show actually might have been able to come back because, again, if nobody knows the show exists, I'm not really sure it can have much of an impact crossing a picket line. But I am mm -hmm. glad they reversed course regardless. Um, and so the WGA folks who had been picketing the Drew Barrymore show, uh, you know, to support the writers on that show will now return to picketing The View, which continues to operate in violation of WGA rules. Again, underlining the fact that everybody thinks these shows have no writers. And if you watch The View, you, you could be forgiven for thinking that. And yet mm -hmm. even they need people to write their stuff for them. And, and so, you know, we're really glad that these folks have reversed course, but uh, also glad that, you know, these picketers can help reinforce folks picketing at other shows that continue to cross the picket line yeah i mean who's even on the view anymore right it's like candace owen uh <laughs> um, i have no megan mccain <laughs> i'm i literally just don't know so, lena well, dunham <laughs> uh, <laughs> over, uh, my grandparents are just like totally uh brain addled uh silent generation like 80 year olds and they have daytime television on constantly so sometimes i'll go over there to in the mornings to like help out stuff they're always watching that shit and it's just oh. like yeah I mean, they have whoopi goldberg and then a bunch of people i don't know and then they'll all they have like they'll be bringing on like fucking republican senators to like cross the aisles and uh, it's it's, mm -hmm. it's brutal it's brutal hey at least my grandparents had the decency to sit at the kitchen table and listen to the police scanner until the day they <laughs> died <laughs> <laughs> proud Damn. tradition no but i just looked up the jennifer hudson show and it's, it's been running since september of 2022 but it said it is the spiritual successor to the ellen degeneres show oh okay i'm sorry i'm sorry the ellen degeneres show is not chrono trigger it doesn't get a spiritual <laughs> successor <laughs> yeah that's uh 
It's just so funny. Like we're claiming the mantle of of Ellen DeGeneres. We have resecured the 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 mantle of heaven <laughs> for, for <talk laughs> mandate of, We have the yeah, mandate of Ellen. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh man. So, anyways, uh, keep up the cyberbullying of anybody who tries to cross picket lines because occasionally you can build enough social pressure to get them to stop doing that bullshit. But in a more just genuinely good news story for this week. Uh, you know, we have talked a lot about the upsurge in university organizing over the last couple of years, really since, I mean, it, it really started to get going in 2016, but like with so many of the movements we follow on the show got turbocharged with the pandemic and the subsequent understanding by millions of workers across this country that in fact, your boss does not give a shit if you die. <laughs> and so we've got another instance of workers standing up and organizing a union at their college. And back on episode 144, which I think was like in February, we talked about an organizing drive by students at Northeastern University in Boston. And they have now, months later, finally been able to get the results of their efforts and have their election. But the drive at Northeastern has actually been going on for eight years since 2015. The problem was back in 2015 that workers were unable to actually get an election through the NLRB and were forced to try and win voluntary recognition from the school because of the way that NLRB rules about whether grad students could organize or not, where they were in, in you know the NLRB sort of like case law precedent back in 2015. And unsurprisingly, that didn't happen. Uh, I, I, I don't recall if we've seen any schools voluntarily recognize their grad student unions. If we have, it's in, like, I can count them on one hand. Um, so not exactly shocking that Northeastern refused to recognize the union back then. However, since 2015, there have been rule changes at the NLRB broadening the uh, capacity for grad students to organize. And so the drive really got reinvigorated during the worst points in the COVID pandemic. So workers really tried to ramp up their efforts as more and more folks were recognizing that the institution that they were a part of was happy to pay them poverty wages and treat them like shit while they do most of the work that the institution relies on. And so grad workers talked to their fellow students by canvassing outside the library, coordinating voting parties for the election to make sure turnout would be high. And uh, as we've seen with many other schools, uh, you know, writing chalk me messages around campus in order to raise awareness. Uh, did they get fucking arrested for it? Like those folks in, what was it, California? <laughs> that was in California. And it's funny you ask that, John. Uh, no, but almost. Oh. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, Northeastern tried the same shit, uh, although not to quite the same extreme as, as the University of California, where when workers, or, sorry, where, when the student workers were going around, you know, using chalk to, to, to tell people to vote yes and tell people about the union, they attempted to charge the workers with vandalism Fuck for off. writing with chalk. It's fucking chalk. It's dust. It's not even water soluble. It's something that's easier to remove than that. It's just it, you, you aim water near it like there's a little bit of humidity in the air and it just peels off. We cannot set the precedent that chalk is vandalism or else like the HOA and where my parents live, they're going to get so many kids like oh, locked up. It's going to be bad. 
I mean, they probably would love to. I mean, well, real no, Kamala Harris brain, why not? Just lock the kids up, lock the parents up too, put a whole family in jail. We're Fuck just going to have to start a campaign. Hopscotch is not a crime. <laughs> 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 and unsurprisingly, the school tried to maximize the intimidation factor of these charges by focusing them against some of the most uh, marginalized workers on campus, like international students, things like that. But that did not deter the workers from organizing. They filed ULP charges against the school with the NLRB and ultimately were able to secure their election. And so Tim Ruprecht, a doctoral candidate in computer engineering at Northeastern, said in an interview with the Huntington News, which is the newspaper for Northeastern University, quote, we saw the pile of ballots get higher and higher. And of course, you know, it's a landslide, but you don't know which way. Then you see the first check mark on the yes column go on the top of the tall pile, and it brings a tear to your eye. It's invigorating, and it restores your faith in your community and campus, end quote. And, and when he says landslide, he's not kidding, because the final vote tally for the grad student union at Northeastern was 1,130 votes yes and 70 votes no. Let's go. <laughs> Hell yeah. Four digits a- to two digits. That's <laughs> incredible. <laughs> Yeah, I always love when I'm like, I can just tell how this is a landslide without even reading the numbers by just seeing the shape of the vote tally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, who's it was an, that a, Pokemon? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and so this was a whopping 94% victory by the students at Northeastern, a true testament to their organizing efforts and, you know, staying strong in the face of these intimidation tactics by the administration. And the workers even actually got a shout out from UAW president, Sean Fain. Oh, and I guess I should have mentioned that at the beginning, the, the, their new union, uh, G-E-N-U, UAW is affiliating as many, many other, uh, higher education unions have recently with the UAW and Sean Fain threw them a shout out at the beginning of his Friday morning strike update live stream to congratulate them on their incredible organizing victory. And so the workers at GENUUAW, upon their victory, now say that they look forward to bargaining with the university for higher pay and better working conditions, especially for students at the school from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. You know, when we really first started seeing this wave, or I guess when we started first taking notice of the wave of academic organizing, I have to profess, I have to admit, I was a little perplexed by how many student worker unions were organizing with the UAW. I was like, you know, obviously you can organize with whatever union you want, but I was like, are they really going to give you the best resources? And then now I see the way that the UAW is handling themselves under Sean Fain and in their contract negotiations with the big three, and I'm just... I really couldn't imagine a better union to to right? get involved with right now, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, the it's the United Academic Workers. Like, why wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, and I think at this point, I don't have the number like off the top of my head, but academic workers now make up like a not insignificant part of the UAW's membership. I think it's something along the lines of like twenty percent of the membership now are are academic workers, which. Is I mean, imp- in addition to, you know, just the fact that the UAW is under the reform leadership with the restored rank and file democracy into the union is doing so great right now. I also think it's just impressive, you know, that a union mm-hmm. like to your point that a union known for representing auto factory workers was able to make the pitch, you know, to the the student workers that it's like not only do you deserve a union, but we can do a good job of serving your your needs. 
Well, and the solidarity between academic workers and auto workers can mm -hmm. be hyper productive and they can bounce that off of each other and use each other's resources to help one another. And talking about helping one another uh, using that kind of solidarity, let's talk about Brazil. Brazilian fans are always saying, come to Brazil. Well, we're Brazil going mentioned. to Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before we even really get into the story, I do just want to say, uh, go on Twitter and follow Brian Mir Teleser if you haven't yes. already, because he's great posting reporter. all of the best Lula content, posting about all of these great solidarity strikes that are happening, solidarity actions mostly, that are happening in solidarity with the UAW workers right now. But uh, another really interesting thing that we've seen in as the political landscape of Brazil has been undergoing a sea change, a labor court in Sao Paulo ruled that Uber drivers are in fact employees. Uh, American <laughs> justice system, please take notes. <laughs> Finding the company $205 million. The case requires Uber to recognize its workers as direct employees and bargain with them in line with Brazilian labor law. I mean, it's not socialism but damn it's a huge fucking w <laughs> oh, man. well and i mean this is like we've seen this from so many countries outside the u.s mm -hmm. driven by you know gig worker organizing pretty much every time uh i i think this is probably the half dozenth story that we've reported on like this it's mostly been like european countries that have reclassified uh uber workers as in fact being employees as they quite obviously are uh and yet <laughs> You, the U.S., just because of our arcane legal system that is one of the most obviously class-dominated, you know, in the capitalist world, mm -hmm. just keeps being more like, are workers people? <laughs> Do we have to consider them that way? And yet, and now, you know, with this changeover in some of the, you know, political positions in the judiciary in Brazil, you're seeing rulings like, yeah, not only are the workers people, but also we got to get rid of this stupid fucking charade that they're independent contractors. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And like a lot of things uh, in Brazil, it took quite a long time to actually work its way through the legal system because you have these prosecutors arguing that Uber maintains near, con near total control over driver's work, even beyond standard employee relations, which is just patently true. And as reported by Bloomberg, the judge in his ruling stated that Uber's level of control over its drivers is unparalleled compared to any known employment relationship to date. And quote, the fine of $205 million will largely be distributed to a workers' support fund for the drivers. And this is just one of many different rulings that we've seen come out of Brazil recently. And it's funny because I don't know if this ruling exactly follows this, this mold, but almost every ruling has been seven in favor of whatever change uh, the, the government intends to make, and then the two Bolsonaro appointees voting against every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I saw, I think uh, I saw the thing that the case that you're referring to this morning where they, the, they recently made changes that uh, to roll back policies from the Bolsonaro era mm -hmm. that made it easier for like ranchers to take land away from indigenous people. And the court mm -hmm. was like, yeah, this is fucked up. We should not do this. And the Bolsonaro judges were like, we should burn the whole country down. Why are yeah. you voting for this? I think they also just recently voted against an investigation uh, into Sergio Moro as well. Mm. Kind of interesting. But not to get too deep into Brazilian politics. <laughs> we are going to bring up Brazil again later, though. Hell yeah, Brazil mentioned twice. <laughs> but uh, Uber, Uber has rejected the ruling, of course. They're going to pretend like it didn't even happen for as long as they reasonably can and vowed to appeal the ruling to the highest authority, Good fucking luck with that. That's a stalling <laughs> tactic as far as I'm concerned. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, this is, I just looked. I just looked this up, and um, I was trying to find out how many Uber drivers there are in Brazil, and there that number is not released. But apparently, there is a uh, one of their big competitors. There's a app, Taxi Rio, in Rio de Janeiro, specifically that was funded by the Rio government. That it's an app that works like Uber, but it connects you with a like traditional unionized cab. Oh uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. There's some. There are some cities in the U.S. that have apps like that. I, I mean, they're still pointing you to like private cab agencies, but that's still a hell of a lot better than the fucking gig companies. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd rather get punched in the shoulder than the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, we've got to turn away from a couple of really happy rulings. Uh, to a couple of more rulings talking about, really, the state of labor in the United States right now. So um, last week, we talked about, really, the fallout from President Biden crushing the rail strike at the end of last year and the fact that safety conditions on our railroads have only continued to deteriorate since the only thing that can actually hold those rail companies to account, worker power, has been repeatedly you know, fought back by the state. And so we unfortunately have a really sad story to report as a result of that, because, you know, one of the big things that workers on the rails have been wanting to strike over for years, if not decades at this point, has been the refusal of rail companies to actually maintain the fucking railroads and actually run systems safely. Like, I mean, we had the whole story last week where we talked about how, you know, inspectors showed up to, I believe it was, yeah, it was a Union Pacific Yard, found 70% of the locomotives were unsafe, then came back the next time and the company hadn't done anything. And there's like, ah, we haven't had time. (laughs) (laughs) So unfortunately, the thing is, it's like, these aren't just like, it looks bad on paper and it actually has real costs. And we found this week, you know, exactly what some of those costs are when another rail worker was tragically killed due to the refusal of the rail companies to actually give a shit about their employees. Uh, Last Sunday, September 17th, Fred Anderson, a car man with uh, CSX in Ohio, was struck and killed by a remote-controlled locomotive operating in the rail yard. Remote-controlled locomotives have been used in rail yards for nearly 20 years since being approved by the government in 2005, but they have been opposed the entire way by the workers who actually work in the goddamn rail yards because they've been sounding alarms about this because... It's a remote-controlled locomotive. That's not safe to be operating around human beings because it's like, here's a tank. Nobody's in it to actually see where it's moving. Oof. Now let's drive it around with a joystick around a bunch of people. Yeah, I think, yeah. I I mean, think we need to limit remote-controlled locomotives to like small ones in someone's basement yeah. around a yeah. constructed landscape. Look, if if the vehicle's big enough to kill somebody and it moves around on the land, there needs to be someone in it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Like, you can have yeah. it be remote controlled, but you have to be in it. So yeah. you may as well just install the controls in the dash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's so- remote controlled. You're just located inside of it. Like, it's still mm-hmm. the same operation. You can still do the joystick, it's, and it's, it's great, <laughs> but you just start inside. 
Yeah, and and the whole reason that these companies are using you know remote controlled locomotives to move cars around in their yards is not because it makes the you know it's it's the best way to operate the train system or like it's the only way you can run these new high technology locomotives. None of that because again the the companies haven't updated their equipment in decades either. <laughs> They're mostly running like 50, 60 year old diesel locomotives. The whole reason they're running remote-controlled locomotives in their yards is so that they can centralize operations into one spot and then understaff the shit out of the yard so there aren't enough people to actually monitor the operations and make sure they're going on safely. Yeah, and I mean, with understaffing in a situation like this is really dangerous because in a rail yard, you have people who are like flaggers and spotters and people who get on their walkie-talkies and their little radio things and they're constantly in communication with one another. And it's like very similar to like, I don't know, uh, uh, a crew on a ship or something. If, mm -hmm. if you take away one or two key people, the whole thing falls apart and everyone is in danger. Yeah, I mean... This is exactly what the RMT has been warning about and fighting back against in the UK. And it's the sort of thing that the rail workers here in the US have been trying to remedy for years while, you know, both the Democrats and the Republicans are like, ah, no, you, you don't shoot, don't deserve any rights. I mean, if you're just standing there holding a flag, like, is that really a like job we need to pay you for? Come on, we can, we can. Look, we can you, you just need to get up. behind the fact that we've all decided understaffing the rails is a bipartisan issue that brings America together. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and so so Artie Martins, the president of the Transportation Communications Union, which is part of the uh, International Association of Machinists and is the parent union of the Brotherhood of Railway Carmen, issued a press release blasting the railroad saying, quote, enough is enough. A full-scale review of the use and practices around remote control locomotives is long overdue. CSX and every railroad must evaluate their use of these supposed technological advancements to ensure they're actually making our members safer and not merely replacing people to continue lining the pockets of Wall Street, end quote. And he's absolutely right. And, you know, CSX issued a statement of condolence, including the outright lie, quote, the safety of our railroaders is our highest priority, end quote, which is frankly an insulting thing for them to write. Like, I understand that it's just a template corporate press release that they had some intern stamp out, but it's just like, don't, don't, don't lie to people. Like well, after you just like got somebody yeah, you killed, killed like, someone because that was not the case. Yeah. Like yeah. if you, if the safety of the railroaders was your highest priority, you wouldn't be using remote controlled locomotives in places where they could kill people. Like, no, you would just... be using modern updated technology that's properly staffed and maintained by a wide team of people who are properly compensated for their work because that's what safety is that's where right. safety comes from yeah it, this is also just one of those things that you whenever you hear you know criticisms of like planned economies being like inefficient this is the sort of stuff they're talking about they're like they would have all these people there just to see if the equipment is safe why would we pay for all that like that's what they're talking about when they talk yeah. about economies being inefficient these socialists are going to come onto your job site and try to keep you alive at the expense of you getting to do cool dangerous stunts that harm you irreparably you wouldn't want right. that now would you <laughs> and and you know again just to, to underline like the point that like CSX does not care about its workers because in the same time it's saying this, the same time it's continuing to operate these remote controlled locomotives, they're also funneling money to lobby Congress to not pass any new safety regulations. So again, like don't buy the PR bullshit from any of these companies. They don't give a shit about however many of their workers are disabled or killed as long as the profits continue to roll in. 
And they're also happy to spend, you know, as much money as they need to to buy as many politicians as they have to in order to keep the state from stepping in. And and it's this is why, you know, we harp so much on Biden's decision to to crush the rail strike, because it's not just, oh, this is an anti-union move, which is bad enough in and of itself, but it has real material human consequences like these the it's like the workers were not just wanting to strike over or better wages and you know more sick days which were perfectly good reasons to strike in the first place but over and over and over again the things that they would say you know about why they were pushing for a strike so much of it was being worried that they weren't going to come home to their families and that's you know what we've seen here and and is really it's like these anti-worker actions by our government have real consequences, and that's why fighting back against it is so important. I just looked up the current CEO of CSX, is Joseph Henricks, and his job before this, he was the president of Ford Automotive Company. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Wow. So, Damn. What a small club. It's getting to be a really small club. Uh, <laughs> to some monopoly capital really shrinks the numbers, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, one, one other thing. This is, this is just stupid. Uh, I saw it. I kept reading Railway Carmen here, and I just kept picturing it's like this uh, noir avenging angel, Railway Carmen. She uh, goes through the oh. <laughs> through the boxcars. Uh, Where in the world is Carmen uh, Van Diego? I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, uh, to move on from our our story that was horrifying enough, we have um, arguably an equally disheartening set of issues to tackle. So one one thing about uh, the New York Times consistent reporting on child labor conditions in this country that has perplexed me is, really? I'm getting this from the New York Times? You'd think it would be a much less like mainstream outlet, but it seems like it's such a big issue uh, around the world, and especially with American companies, that even the New York Times feels like they have to publish something about it. So they released uh, their... They've done some good reporting. But uh, we'll get into this. Uh, uh, the analysis part of this has a lot Leaves to be desired. Little, yeah. yeah, fair enough. But uh, they did, they'd released their latest expose in their series on the resurgence of child labor in the U.S. this week with a focus on injuries. So we're not going to rehash everything that we've gone over previously, but essentially many U.S. companies have taken advantage of the impact of U.S. imperialism on Latin America to increase their profits. They use desperate children sent to work to send money back home to their starving families in countries dominated by U.S. corporations to supply cheap labor that won't organize in order to boost their profits doing dirty and dangerous work. The latest piece includes a litany of horrific injuries and focuses on a young Guatemalan boy, Marcos, who began working at a Purdue chicken plant last year at the age of just 13. He would work all night on the crew cleaning the slaughterhouse and packing plant with extremely dangerous chemicals and surrounded by blood, gristle, and sharp blades, as we have talked about on this show several times before. Predictably, the use of children on this horrific work has resulted in many injuries. Marcos's arm was nearly torn from his body when another worker accidentally turned on a processing line that he was cleaning. When he arrived at the hospital, his work paper said he was 10 years older than in reality, which is, when I first read that, I remember thinking to myself how not just criminal it is, but also, like, obvious it would be to try to present a 13-year-old as a 23-year-old. Mm-hmm. Like, you, how demented do you have to be to not even shoot for, like, 19? You know? Like, how hard... What kind of universe of logic are you operating on? 
Well, that's one of the aspects of this crisis, you know, that has infuriated me. It's hard to really rank them. There are so many awful aspects of it, mm-hmm. but the fact it's the obviousness of it. Like it's because so many of the people we will get to this. There's so many people involved in this situation who could have spoken up, who could have said something and didn't do anything. And it's not so often as I think a lot of people might think because folks are like, I had no idea. This person appeared to be an adult. He was 13. Mm-hmm. Nobody thinks a fucking 13-year-old is 23, much less 18. They are a child and visibly a child. And we have, and it's not just, you know, me saying that to excoriate these people. Like we have case after case after case. And, and this is some of the good reporting that I will give, like, give credit to the New York Times on that. They have talked to a ton of people involved in these situations. And over and over and over again, the people are like, yeah, we knew they were kids, but, you know, it's a tough situation. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of people saying, what are you going to do? And the answer is like, you should fucking tell somebody. You should yeah. notify the labor board. You should. I mean, they're like, it, and it's like, look, yeah, no, is it your individual responsibility to solve the crisis of child labor? No. Is it your responsibility to try and do something to protect the, you know, the safety of these children mm-hmm. in a fucking slaughterhouse? To just do something? To yeah, tell make sure somebody? Yes. Try to make sure a 13 year old doesn't die. Yeah, that's always yeah. kind of your de facto responsibility whenever there's a 13 year old around. Yeah, I mean, I think it should be understood that it's like the safety of of minors in society is the collective responsibility of that society. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I mean, and then the other uh, another part of this that's so much larger is that yeah, these kids are being sent here to make money because like their mm-hmm. families are so impoverished, and so it's like yeah, like obviously, like it's it goes without saying that this is that children should not be. I mean, adults shouldn't be doing this for mm-hmm. for that matter. But like, just the the fractal level of economic oppression, uh, just at every level of this situation, just makes it. It's like where I mean, where do you? Well, I know where to start. You, like you, yeah, you, like you said, you call the report this, get this stopped. But just like mm-hmm. the conditions that lead to like these kids being in this situation, like as a result of you know, decades of U.S. imperialism. It's just, I... Uh, yeah, because it's like, what are you going to do? I- even if you can manage to somehow get the horrible business owner's ass in the can, it's like you're, you, the kids are probably going to get deported or now they're going to have to go right. deal with Department of Homeland Security or whatever. And it's like, it's, it's a really fucked up situation yeah. from every angle. And, and the real answer is like, what do we do? Well, maybe we just stop creating these conditions right? Exactly. in the first place. But that's a bigger conversation <laughs> than like labor law, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, in the, in the immediate, you know, response to this sort of thing, the answer is like, yeah, okay. So the local government isn't doing shit, of mm-hmm. course, because they're bribed by these giant companies right. that make more money than the entire GDP of that town in a decade. Um, So, yeah, you're probably not going to get help from them. But your community is made up of people, of working Mm -hmm. people, who also don't want children to be maimed in a fucking slaughterhouse. It's like, you don't have to do all this yourself, but there are other people in your community who also don't want this shit to happen. And coming together, you can organize around this stuff. Right, and it probably is in your community. If you're thinking like, oh, this is just taking place wherever, such and such thing, that's not true. So quoting everywhere. Yeah, quoting the New York Times, quote, a Guatemalan eighth grader was killed on a cleaning shift at a Marjack plant in Mississippi in July. A federal investigation 
had found migrant children working illegally at the company a few years earlier. A 14-year-old was hospitalized in Alabama after being overworked at a chicken operation there. A 17-year-old in Ohio had his leg torn off at the knee while cleaning a Case Farms plant. Another child lost a hand in a meat grinder at a Michigan operation. End quote. So that's that's like a third of the country right there. Yeah, Yeah, my first step, the the owner of every one of those companies should be in turbo prison. Yes. (laughs) Which is really just any prison in the United States. But like it's just like I'm like, you are directly responsible for this owner of this company. Because the only reason you have these kids working there and they all disclaim responsibility, but it's like the only reason this is happening is because of your endless thirst for profits at all costs. You could absolutely hire a clean union cleaning company that is only going to hire folks who are trained and have the right PPE and aren't, you know, overworked, like, to crazy extents to where they, you know, can't, you know, perform this work safely, which is very dangerous. And who are adults. (laughs) But it would be more expensive. And they don't want to do that. And it's the fact that that's the decision that was made that is just, I'm just, jail. Forever. Yeah. Well, Make Super Jail real and put Tyson CEOs in it. A, yes. Federal, yes. a federal investigation had found migrant children working illegally at the company a few years earlier. Well, then what happened? Like, this yeah. was like, hey, right. hey, there are uh, illegal migrant children uh, working. Oh, shit. Thanks for letting us know. Yeah. If like, I had to guess, they probably got slapped with a few, you know, low-ass couple thousand dollar fines that they probably didn't even have to pay. So what happens in those situations? Almost always. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company immediately fires the the miners that are working there disclaims responsibility for it says it's never going to happen again and then six months later they uh, hire a different company or the same company under a different name or sometimes sometimes the same same migrant children under a different (laughs) company name literally the same people Um, Yeah, so justifying the system, we heard from Miguel Cobo, a shift supervisor for the cleaning crew Marcos worked on, who told the New York Times, quote, they have to work. If companies like this look too closely at who was working, no company would be able to keep going, end quote, which is something that we hear from people all the time, which is like, if we followed the law, we'd be out of business. Oh, my God. He admit it. That is what, (laughs) that's the law. That's why the law is the law. (laughs) Well, yeah. And it's like, look, I, I, you know, I I don't want to lend any more legitimacy to capitalist law than it deserves, (laughs) but it's just like, oh, if my business followed safety regulations, my business couldn't operate, then your business shouldn't be operating. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also like if your business can't even follow the loose ass, barely enforced safety standards that we have in this country, you're not just a capitalist. You are, you are like a feudal warlord who figured out how money works. Yeah. Like, and it's the, you know, it's the same thing when we talk about like restaurant owners who are like, if I had to pay a living wage, well, I couldn't operate. Okay. Yeah, this is fine. Entitled, yeah. yeah, this entitlement. <laughs> like, I it is my God given right to have my business uh, succeed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Go get a job, dude. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And so, I, I want to get into the part of the reporting that I had the biggest disagreement with, which is their attempt to analyze this situation. So, again, a lot of this the specific uh, case that they're they're following here revolves around Purdue. Uh, one of the two chicken monopolies in the United States, them and Tyson being the other one, uh, and both of which operate in this area. And and so the New York Times tried to describe the situation as a complicated one uh, with a passage uh, about the community impact of these giant companies, oh uh, where I'll just quote uh, you know a paragraph from there saying, Children go to school with backpacks donated by Purdue and study in math and science centers funded by the company. Tyson gives thousands of pounds of chicken and dry goods to first responders and food banks that families rely on as nearly one in three children in the community live in poverty. Oh, my God! Purdue buys... 
Purdue buys trucks for the volunteer fire department and donates hundreds of whole chickens to its cookout fundraisers. When Parksley got its first library this summer, the Purdue Children's Room was its centerpiece. Oh, yeah, sure, the fucking <laughs> Apple company causes widespread poverty and has taken over the economy of the whole town, but every year for the Apple Festival, they give us truckloads of fucking apples, so, so I don't know, it's a wash, it's more or, or less. <laughs> oh my yeah. fucking God. Like, that's, that's just like textbook, like... Uh, capitalist uh, fucking charity washing, or I, I don't know what the actual term is. Yeah, well, and I mean, I, I pulled a quote because of this immediately, I, I pulled a quote in here because the first thing I thought of was like, you guys don't understand what charity is or how it works or, or why it's not a solution to anything. I know ultimately this is a symptom of the problem of liberal journalism in the United <laughs> States having this bizarre concept of neutrality that like, if you're going to be a serious journalist, you have to be objective and neutral, uh, which is not a thing that does look, not exist. Look, there sides. is no such thing as class neutral reporting. You want to publish a fucking article in my paper. You're going to have to give equal time to the kid who got his fucking arm ripped off and the fucking people who ripped his arm off. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> Like, we got to be fair to the child mutilators. Like, let's hear them out. Right. And and to underline, like, why this is not actually a, you know, fair uh, way to present this. Like, first off... I mean, then they even wrote this into the paragraph. They're like, oh, Tyson gives all this, these, these, uh, you know, all this money and food to food banks because of how many kids live in poverty. I'm like, they're the biggest employer in the region. They're the reason the kids are in poverty. Yeah. It's literally like Ron Paul, Gary Johnson ass. I mean, like you said, it's a disease of like liberal journalism. I would argue that most liberal journalists are essentially libertarian journalists when they start writing articles about labor relations or workplaces or even just like mention a company. Yeah. And so there's this quote that Engels uh, put in uh, the condition of the working class in England. A hundred and eighty years ago. So yesterday. where he's, Where he said this, quote, the English bourgeoisie is charitable out of self-interest. It gives nothing outright, but regards its gifts as a business matter, makes a bargain with the poor, saying, if I spend this much upon benevolent institutions, I thereby purchase the right not to be troubled any further, and you are bound thereby to stay in your dusky holes and not to irritate my tender nerves by exposing your misery. You shall despair as before, but you shall despair unseen. This I require, this I purchase with my subscription of 20 pounds for the infirmary. <laughs> Love that guy. And like my man had it nailed 180 <laughs> years ago. That's the whenever you hear like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, I'm going to give away all my money. And then somehow their foundation just keeps getting more richer and richer. Like bourgeois philanthropy is a way to try and buy you off. That's all it is. And, and, and if we don't make it stop working, it will work because like walk around fucking Pittsburgh and just count the number of times you see Andrew Carnegie's name on some shit. It's fucking disgusting. It's all the hospitals. It's the schools. It's the fucking memorials. It's the benches. It's everything. And what is, what is that shit doing? That's him saying you could have had so much more than this. But yeah. instead, you can have this little tiny slice of my wealth. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And, you know, pointing to the failure and somewhat complicity of the state here, uh, the, the article does note that the Department of Labor has a total of 750 inspectors to cover 11 million employers in this country who employ, again, nearly 200 million workers. They have 750 people to tackle that whole 
network. Of course, obviously impossible. Uh, and the existence of that inspection program, I would argue, does serve its real function, which is to demobilize worker demands for better federal regulation of working conditions by instead funneling them into this bureaucratic morass that can't possibly actually do the ostensible function that is supposed to be serving of actually regulating work sites. And, and to really drive that point home, the inspector who was assigned to the plant that Marcos worked at, where his arm again was nearly torn off, and he was working there as a 13-year-old, that inspector never even visited the site. He allowed the plant to do a self-inspection <laughs> and closed the case without ever even recording the illegal oh, use of child labor. God. Yeah, we uh, we took a look, and I think, I think we're okay. I'm, uh, look, I, I know there's only 750 of you, and there's 11 million employers. But if you don't go to the site, an inspection did not occur. There's no site. Self-inspections are not real. I'm sorry. Yeah, they are not real. Thing. Like, the, the, the reason self-crit is a thing that individuals do is because you can't have your body parts audit each other. But when a system <laughs> right. is divisible, parts of it have to check the other parts. That's how things work. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the CIA investigated itself and found right, itself exactly. not guilty. Like every police department. Yeah. Now, USDA inspectors who have more funding due to fears from the ruling class of contamination <laughs> of their own food, uh, are fully staffed at, at the plant Marcos was working at, but refused to report obvious child labor law violations. Uh, one of those inspectors interviewed by the Times reporters, Maria Escalante, said, quote, it's not my place to say anything. It is quote. literally your job. <laughs> I, yeah. that's, and, that's, that's incredible. Like, in the and, literal sense And this of the word. is after she admitted that she was aware that the child workers at the plant injure themselves at higher rates than the adult workers. <laughs> I, I'm just like, I don't understand how you like get out of bed in the morning. It's like, well, the fuck is wrong? Yeah, someone, you? someone should say something about this. Not me, the like official inspector, but somebody. And like, we're all trying to find the guy yeah, whose job it is exactly. to say something about this. Exactly. <laughs> like, you don't work for the company. They can't fire you. Like it's it it blows my mind, and and it, and it like we, the only reason this whole story really got blown open in the first place was when teachers in Nebraska reported a child in their class coming in with chemical burns, Oof. and that helped blow open this whole case and and uh, you know the giant company Packers Sanitation's business model of profiting off the maiming of children. But I mean the other thing is that's so infuriating about this reporting is because on the one hand they. As far as you know, like actual on the ground, like pounding the pavement journalism, it's great. It's, a, it's excellent work that they, they threw a lot of resources at. I don't want to downplay that. But like so much of the reporting we see from the corporate press, uh, even, you know, the liberal part of the ideological state apparatus, there's never anyone at fault it's just, this is a manifestation of how things are. And, oh, man, look how much of a shame it is. There, but there's no, there's no one to blame. There's, there's no one who's, who's actually like directing these horrors. It's just something that randomly occurs. That's, that's the thing that gets me about the whole liberal worldview. Like nothing is ever situated. There's no context for anything. There's no such thing as like conditions or forces. It's just like you're buffeted by the whatever happens to you at any given day, whatever happens. Oh, it is just, there's nothing. Everything's just unpredictable you live in this mm -hmm. this maelstrom of of events and there's just no way to predict anything it just it, it's it's wild to me 
Well, and it's a whole instantiation versus origin problem too. Like liberals are so concerned about whatever is the thing that's happening. How do we how do we give you a Tylenol for this? How do we put a hot compress on it? It's never where is this ailment coming from? What is the origin of the problem? It's always like, oh, this these these children have chemical burns. Well, we need to make sure that we find that company and that we do this one little thing over here and maybe this inspector needs to be replaced. It's never like, why is it that this is a widespread fucking problem? Why is it that this is something that we just see iterations of? happening everywhere all the time right and it's not like they don't point to any of the pieces of where this is coming from they talk a a lot about how conditions in guatemala are so awful and why like so many families feel that the best thing they can do to keep their family alive is to send their children by themselves to the united states to work and send money back and at no point does the article ask why are conditions like that in Guatemala? Why are there right-wing military dictators in that country that have been supported by the United States for decades? You know, what do you think maybe the genocide of 250,000 indigenous Mayan people supported by the United States might have had something to do with that? Or the fact that, you know, major American corporations like Nestle and Coca-Cola have run death squads in Latin America for decades, murdering union organizers who were trying to make conditions better so that the workers aren't starving and don't have to send their kids north. There's no discussion of any of that because that might require them to interrogate the, you know, the motivations behind their own paymasters Mm -hmm. and the people who prop up the New York times as the so-called paper of record. And that's one of the things that is so infuriating about what should otherwise be a very laudable piece of investigative journalism. And so they, the article even implies that the enforcement of child labor laws might be counterproductive due to the debts of the families of these kids that they take on to get their kids into the country in the first place. Basically saying like, yeah, we know it's dangerous and illegal for these kids to work, but the families need money, so maybe we shouldn't enforce child labor laws. Like, that's the implication given in several parts of the story. It's never said directly like that. So they're saying, like, essentially they're trying to imply, like, well, yeah, it's inhumane to make them work, but wouldn't it be more inhumane to make them not work? That's basically what they're saying. The wise man bowed his head solemnly and said, there's actually zero difference between good and bad things. You fucking imbecile. You moron. Yeah, and to emphasize that this is, continues to happen and that just exposing it in the press is not enough, you know, after these investigations have become more, more prominent, many cleaning companies did quickly fire minor employees, worried that they would get caught and slapped with some fines. But after a few months, struggling to find adults willing to do the dangerous, dirty work for jack shit in pay, they immediately started hiring children again. Marcos, for his part, still requires multiple surgeries even a year after the incident, and his arm may never properly heal. And to that point, he may never be able to wear short sleeves again. And yet, we're getting articles like this that then just say, well, is there anything we can do? Who knows? It's... uh, This sucks, and I I, I know that this stuff is really a, a downer to talk about, but like... This isn't going to go away, like, unless workers organize around it. And so I I really think it's important to keep this fresh in people's minds. But one of the other uh, unfortunate things that we have brought up so many times on this show, I promise this story is not quite as dark as the other (laughs) one. It's prison labor. Although I will say, we're not talking about prison labor in the U.S. So it's, 
It's, it's not quite as bad. This, we're, t- we're talking about prison labor in Finland this time. This is actually an intersection of two of our least favorite types of labor stories, which is both prison slavery and click work. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about so many of these new, like, quote-unquote AI products or just advanced algorithms that claim to be, you know, incredible advancements in software. And a lot of times are mostly just relying on labor of human beings being paid almost nothing. Uh, You know, we've talked about the fact that in refugee camps, in countries devastated by imperialist war, and in prisons, tech companies have outsourced a lot of the work that they claim is being performed by AI. And there was a recent uh, story in Wired that examined what's being done to train those AI programs, even in, you know, supposedly humane social democratic Europe. Yeah. So, you know, Scandinavian prisons, I feel like, have this weird aura in the United States of like, this is how you can do prisons, but okay. Well, that's like been a, that's been a whole genre of wired article write ups <laughs> for like 25 years now, which is like, check this Finnish prison has a ping pong table. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay. I mean, they're not like, torture camps explicitly set up to, you know, oppress like uh, whole races of people like in the United States. So in that way, I suppose they're not as bad, but that's, uh, you know, it's a, the, the bar is as low as it could possibly be. And also as an aside, those really nice Scandinavian prisons that get written up are not all of the prisons in Scandinavia. And often they are reserved for prisoners who are quote unquote on their best behavior and have shown recognizance and blah, 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 which is often a cover for giving them to the wealthiest, most, most connected right. inmates who are in the system. I, I remember reading, I, I don't remember, the, the fucking mass shooter in like Norway oh, or whatever. Yeah, Anders yeah he was, mm-hmm. I remember reading an article a few years later, they're like, wow, he's got this cushy prison where his biggest complaint is that he only has PS2 games to play when there's like uh, newer, newer game systems out there. He's using old models. Like how sad for him. That's wild. So yeah, the, and there are so many of those articles that are printed specifically to justify the horrific conditions in the U S they're like, Oh, what do you want murderers to have? Like, like Mm -hmm. they have it so good in Finland. No, we should make them like, you know, the spike room from in, from the temple of doom. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) you know, ignoring the fact that of how the whole prison system in the U.S. Yeah. works, what it's used yeah. for, who it actually locks up, and yeah. the fact well, that the vast majority of them are guilty of nothing more than just being a black person. Yeah, exactly. The average person in the U.S. criminal uh, system is not Anders Breivik or Varg Vikern, just for right. fucking reference. Right, like, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the average U.S. prisoner is like a young black male who was like pulled over by the cops and got unlucky that it's like, this was the day that this group group of cops decided to just fucking throw somebody in prison for no reason. Mm-hmm. But anyways, back to the Finnish prisons. Uh, the reason that, you know, Wired, Wired wrote up this story is that Finnish prisons have now begun offering the labor of their prisoners to tech companies for the rock bottom price of about $1.50 an hour. And for these negligible wages, which are higher than the click work wages paid by the worst offenders in like Kenyan refugee camps, but again, not a very high bar to clear. Yeah. Uh, and they're using this labor to train AI models like chat bots to respond to different inputs. And the example in the article is highlighting is a Finnish software startup called Metroc, which uses the labor of prisoners to train its software to scrape the internet for information about construction projects. And basically what the, the, the workers are reading paragraphs of text and then answering what are what would basically be reading comprehension questions of saying, mm. is this about a construction project? Does this say X, Y, or Z in order to train a large language model to understand that? You're, you're, you're doing like a, a 
kind of sort of cousin of a captcha all day. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, God. very much so. It's incredibly monotonous labor. And, and you know, Metroc would have happily farmed out it out to even lower paid super exploited workers the way companies like OpenAI have paid for paid refugees in Kenya and Palestine pennies to, to train their models. But Metroc specifically is looking for, uh, you know, folks who speak Finnish, which is a much smaller group of people. And so rather than, you know, just be like, oh, well, I guess we'll just hire people on the normal labor market and pay them Finland's normal wage. Like, oh, that would be expensive. And we don't want to do that. So what if we just made prisoners do the labor for almost no money? That would be great. <laughs> and, you know, Metroc and its supporters in Finland claim that their type of click work is different because it prepares inmates for work after their release. Name one job. Which? Name a single job that this would be useful for. <laughs> oh, for Christ's Yeah, sake. I can't wait to get out onto the European job market with my Finnish language reading comprehension that I learned in prison. Literally, what are you talking about? <laughs> There's... And uh, Finnish is such a fucked up... Uh, just in case people don't know this, Finnish is not like any other European language. It is not even closely related to Norwegian or any Germanic languages. It's from an entirely separate tree. English is more closely related to Persian than Finnish <laughs> is to either of those languages. And... Now, I will say for this program, it's less inhumane than a lot of the other ones. They're, the program is voluntary, and there are currently no speed quotas that, that the workers have to hit, and shifts only last a few hours instead of 8, 10, 12, or even longer like they often do in the worst cases of this. But again, these workers are being paid $1.50 an hour. And while Finland has no official minimum wage, the research that I tried to do quickly, uh, I found that the average working class salary there is about two to 3,000 euros per month, which averages out to about 15 euros per hour, or 10 times the wage that the prisoners are receiving. Also, Finland not having an official minimum wage is a little surprising to me. I mean, I know that I should have at this point outgrown most of my preconceptions about what a Nordic model Scandinavian social democratic country is and does, but it's so weird that like you see the write-ups and they're like, Finland gives you 60 four weeks off to raise a child, <laughs> sends you baby boxes in the mail, and then they're just like, but no minimum wage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think largely the reason there hasn't been a push for that is that the the finnish population has such a high like union density mm -hmm. that the idea is that the unions will take care of that um although i would caution i'm like you still live in a capitalist system you can never maintain that for like well permanently <laughs> and you need to get whatever protections you can because there's only about yeah. like what 110,000 finnish people full stop like it's not a very <laughs> populated country <laughs> I, I think it's like five million or something. Still. So. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the, the some of the quotes in here from the people boosting this are so ridiculous. So uh, Jussi Vernarla, the CEO of Metroc, told Wire reporters that it's just it's such a great business model. And, and, and everyone in the Finnish business world responded enthusiastically to the program, saying, quote, everyone was just interested in and excited about what an innovative way to do it. I think it's been really valuable product-wise, end quote. I was going to make some joke with a Finnish accent, but I have no idea what a Finnish accent sounds like, so... 
Yeah, literally don't even try because it's <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> and I'm just like, these are the things that business brain does yeah. to you. It makes mm-hmm. you say phrases like, I think it's been really valuable product wise. Referring to this prison labor. Yeah, the 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 like the yeah. sterility of the language that they're using to describe just exploiting people who are in prison. Uh, it really does make you think about their relationship to Nazi Germany. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't 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 Google pictures of of Mannerheim with uh Adolf Hitler and then ask about the uh, former logo of the Finnish Air Force. That's that nice, clean Uh, Scandinavian design. Look, I'm just saying uh, there's a reason that people love to dog whistle about how much they support Finnish snipers against the Soviet (laughs) Union. But anyway, these points are all about the Finnish ruling class. To be clear, this is not a... No, like, if you're a Finnish talk. person in jail, I'm not calling you a Nazi. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, just maybe you clear. are. I don't know, but like, off off top, not doing that. Like, <laughs> and, and just to underline again the ridiculous way that this program has been framed, uh, Pia Puolaka, head of Finland's Smart Prison Project, an ominous name to begin with, uh, told Wired, "Quote." This type of work is the future, and if we want to prepare prisoners for life outside prison, a life without crime, these types of skills might be at least as important as the traditional work types that prisons provide. I, the thing is that, like, if that's true, I mean, like, that might be true, but that's just like such a Judge Dread ass, like, oh, I mm-hmm. we're, I live in uh, Slum Sector Zeta, and I log on right. to. Uh, do my uh lang like do my captures for the day and like then i get my uh soylent allotment like that's the yeah. that's the kind go of back fe- to my prime yeah exactly well and it's like it's it's so fucking weird to be like actually having them on the computer doing weird little captures is going to give them way more skills than like fixing the roads or whatever yeah, other dumbass le- work we were having them or learning do. to grow food in like the prisons like little farm or yeah. whatever mm-hmm. or like any i mean obviously like just you know any labor that has is done in a prison should be voluntary it should be paid the same wage as everybody outside and should have the, you know the same working protections but the idea that a that this work gives you any skills whatsoever is a oh my god uh, the fa- the idea that it gives you more or equal skills as other types of labor also a lie it, the other thing that bugs me about this is they're like they're always like comparing it to other types of work and they never talk about the pay like mm-hmm. there there's never any discussion of the exploitation it's just assumed and i and i think that this is part of this is is not just you know finland or wired it's it's the general liberal worldview of like oh you know of course exploiting the shit out of those those people is fine they're in prison they're 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 therefore morally classed as bad so it's totally fine to just exploit them that way. But, um, and the other thing that I thought was really fucking gross about this article is that in it, some of the Finnish business and government officials who were interviewed about the program portrayed it as a way to protect Finnish language digital resources from being overwhelmed by English dominated software. Uh, okay. National security <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> That's, I mean, a, that's that's a really rough hand wave to kind of like swallow because it's like not only do I not buy it, but also what are you saying again exactly? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, like I get, I guess I can understand on some level the idea that English kind of dominates the very like I I get that, but like if you actually cared, yeah, no, that, I mean that's a, that's a yeah, problem. but if you actually cared about that, then do what they do in like I, I think they do it in like France and stuff where that's like a big they have a government agency that is focused on that not just like oh well we'll just pay our like uh fucking prison slaves to imp- like right defend the language mm-hmm. 
Yeah, invest a few fucking tens of millions of dollars in the Suomi Translatin Ketten network <laughs> or whatever instead of fucking around trying to exploit people in jail. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. It's just like your argument that, oh, we're doing this for the high-minded reasons of like cultural preservation is undermined by the fact that you won't pay more than a dollar fifty for the work. Yeah, it can't mm-hmm. be that important. Yeah, so anyways, uh, click work is bullshit and prison slavery is also bullshit and uh, really... Really looking forward to hopefully people stopping to do these puff pieces about it and how great it is because right. it's incredibly fucked up. Well, as long as we're going to let, let's let's move on to something that is a little bit more of an upbeat kind of story. So let's talk about yeah, some... as we move towards the, the story everyone knows is our, our main story for the week. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's impossible not to talk about the UAW right now. Look, we didn't. I'm not mad at the Teamsters. Look, they got a great contract. They did their thing. Historic contract. Historic contract. I mean, like landslide in the labor movement. But we were all ready for there to be a big strike thingy. And now we have one. So thank you, UAW. <laughs> 07, uh, thank you for your service. And we do want to, um, really quickly, before we talk about all of the developments in the stand-up strike against the big three automakers, we want to talk about a parallel struggle that has been developing in Alabama. So about 200 UAW local 2083 workers at a plant in Tuscaloosa, one of the most fun place names to say in the country, uh, who produce <laughs> axles used by Mercedes-Benz. They they launched a strike of their own, hitting the picket lines on Wednesday, September the 20th. The ZF axle plant was built in the late 90s and employs about 300 people. Built in the late 90s, so you know it's fallen apart. Uh, the workers <laughs> are fighting to end tiers, which have held back newer workers, higher wages for all workers, and better health care benefits. Workers rejected three contract offers before voting to strike, showing that they gave the company ample chance to negotiate a fair deal. ZF, the German auto parts firm which owns the factory, say that they will continue operating using scabs while the strike continues. Right. And this- yeah, my uh, interesting. My dad actually used to work for a ZF plant. They used to have a an auto parts plant near where I grew up, which they then closed down. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I got no, you know, no, uh, uh, no affection for ZF. Be, be careful <laughs> if you're driving a new Mercedes Benz in the next couple of years, because you may be <laughs> having these scab uh, axles. Like, mm-hmm. who knows how? Who knows how? Uh, how solid those are going to be. And and also, just a, a trivia piece for people, the Z in ZF stands for Zeppelin because it's literally descended from uh, the family of Baron von Zeppelin. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> wow. so cool. Uh, <laughs> just to give you a perspective on the company that these workers are up against. Yeah, well, also, German companies is evil, especially West German ones. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh yeah, I went to uh, I went to their uh, I went to their website, the ZF website, and like the history. It starts at 1875, and then it jumps to like 1950. Oh, <laughs> hey, what happened in that? What was going on in those intervening 80 years yeah. there, ZF? It's it's a big time frame. Real goose chasing the guy meme hours. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so this strike is particularly noteworthy for its location. Automakers, whether foreign or domestic, have exploited the anti-labor policies of right-wing southern governments, such as Alabama, to brutally crush attempts at unionization at their southern plants. And holding the line at ZF and securing a better contract will demonstrate that not only can workers in the South unionize, their unions can fight and win as well. And like we've talked about many times on the show, these these horribly right-to-work, heavily Republican-controlled southern states 
are not just a challenge for the labor movement, they can also be one of the biggest stepping stones in our success if we make big changes down there. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I think people sometimes think about, you know, oh, the, well, we got to focus our efforts where, where we're most likely to win, I, which I totally get. But it's like the... The South being unorganized mm-hmm. is a is a, a existential danger to the labor movement. Like it it there's a reason so many movements have tried to prioritize it uh, because if we don't organize the South, you can't organize the United States. Well, so it, it's really inspiring, to, you know, to see these workers joining. You know, clearly inspired by the energy energy of their their fellow workers at the Big Three and stepping up for themselves as well. Yeah, well, and like you know, if you want to improve, you have to prioritize your weak spots, right? So it's just a it's just yeah. a functional thing. Like without, if if we just sit around and work on union activity in places where it's already active, what are we really doing? Yeah, exactly. We're really just kind of reinforcing the existing divisions between parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Real urban rural divide hours, mm-hmm. um, but. To get to our main story this week, the story I know everybody's very excited about, one of the most class-conscious strikes that I've seen in my lifetime, the UAW stand-up strike continues this week, uh, where you know 13,000 auto workers in Missouri, Ohio, and Michigan have now been on strike for the past week to force the automakers to negotiate a deal that reflects their hard Midwestern work. Midwestern excellence. And the impact of the strike... That's right. That's right. Get out the cheese curds, <laughs> boys. <laughs> And the impact of the strike has piled up rapidly during the first week. Upon the strike of final assembly and paint workers at Ford's Michigan assembly plant, the company quickly locked out 600 other UAW members because of lack of work to give them. GM similarly laid off 2,000 of its workers at a Fairfax, uh, Kansas facility when parts from the Wentzville assembly plant in Missouri dried up. And the UAW called out the companies for having plenty of money to keep those workers on the job and said and committed that, you know, the workers will receive strike pay while they're laid off. In a statement, Sean Fain said, quote, let's be clear. If the big three decide to lay people off who aren't on strike, that's them trying to put the squeeze on our members to settle for less. With their record profits, they don't have to lay off a single employee, end quote. Wow. That is precisely what I would tell the union president to do <laughs> if he asked me <laughs> yeah it's it's funny because you know we'll have strikes and we'll be like yeah that's a great statement now let's add some analysis to it but there's so many with sean fain that i'm like yeah what he said yeah <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10 no comments no notes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uncritical support <laughs> uh so you know workers at plants still in operation as you know part of the stand-up strike strategy where there's it's targeted locations that have been striking the workers who have been operating under their expired contract have continued to support their striking brethren as well, many by following a policy of refusing voluntary overtime, which some have referred to as eight and skate, which <laughs> love it. Great name. And that's that's Midwesterners are very receptive to sloganeering. If you give them something that rhymes, it will be all over the place in a day. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, speaking with labor notes, local 897 forklift driver and local vice president Ricky Brand said, quote, it's crossing an unofficial picket line to work overtime. It's helping out the company, end quote, which is absolutely right. And he said that Ford had been forced to cancel multiple shifts at his plant because so many workers refused voluntary overtime. 
And workers in Texas told Labor Notes that uh, workers at, at a plant there have also stopped agreeing to work through lunch or through breaks for extra pay as they had previously been used to doing. And that as a result, the plant has now struggled to approach its usual breakneck Hell pace. Yeah. Okay, uh, love that. Keep not working through your breaks or lunches for extra pay, but also never start again for any reason. <laughs> never, ever do that. That's right. <laughs> well, and but it... It also, it continues to point to what the union has been saying for mm-hmm. so long, that it's like the business model the big three are operating under is ridiculous. Like it is, this is not how you would run a healthy company because if you're, the only way you can make your your targets is to force your workers to work mandatory OT and work through their lunch and work through their breaks. I'm just like, well, you have clearly not hired enough people. <laughs> but that's the impact from this week. And But that's just with three plants on strike. <laughs> On Friday at 10, with the bosses still refusing to agree to terms on many critical areas, Sean Fain held a press conference to announce the next round of strike targets. Negotiations at Ford have made progress. Actually, I think very impressive progress for one week, with the company agreeing to several of the union's core demands. Ford has agreed to fully reinstate the COLA that was taken away in 2009 as part of the auto bailouts, agreed that workers will be allowed to strike over plant closures, I, which I'm shocked they've already agreed to that in one week. And the comp- and have also agreed to convert any temp workers on their staff to full-time with full union benefits within 90 days of being hired. Hell yeah. Ending the practice of having temps work for years without the possibility of advancement. Really, I, I think the way I would, I would point to it is like, if this is a return basically sure. to the probationary period that workers used to have back in the 60s and 70s when auto work was you know considered one of those like you're lucky to get this job because right. of all the benefits that the union had been able to secure but over time with a combination of state attacks during bailouts uh you know a ramped up company assault during the 80s and 90s and also decades of concessionary bargaining by class collaborationist leadership from the administration caucus you've had these those benefits eaten away at eaten away at eaten away at and that was really you know what propelled Sean Fain and the reform movement in the union into you know power in the union was the fact that workers were just fucking fed up with that stuff like we're we've been giving stuff away to the companies for decades and it's time for that to end and so you know these are these are huge wins and because of that there will be no additional ford plants that go on strike this week however the michigan assembly plant will stay shut down because there are still other issues that ford still needs to come to an agreement with but that's just ford (laughs) Uh, ford seems to be the one company that's actually negotiating in a relatively reasonable manner. Although I would say it's like, why didn't you do that months ago? Mm -hmm. You've had plenty of time. (laughs) You could have avoided the strike at the Michigan assembly plant entirely, but GM and Stellantis have not been uh, so reasonable. They have continued to refuse to bargain fairly. They've continued to refuse to agree to uh, reinstate COLA or to improve conditions for temps at all. Stellantis has even uh, continued to insist on maintaining the two-tiered wage system, saying they will not give up their lower tier, uh, specifically at their parts division, Mopar. And so, in response to that, on Friday at noon, 38 GM and Stellantis parts distribution centers were called to stand up and join the 13,000 UAW workers already on strike. These parts centers, which supply aftermarket parts to dealerships, are one of the big three's most profitable operations. And Fain explained 
why they were specifically targeting those parts distribution centers is that they're also one of the biggest offenders when it comes to tiered wages, especially like at Stellantis with Mopar. He said, quote, one of our issues is ending tiers. They're a big example of that. Their wages were capped at $25 some years back during the greatest times in the history of these companies, and that's got to change, end quote. This, this is such a strong tactic. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit with the with the flying squadrons, but I think this is another good example of how, like, you don't necessarily just need to hit them where it's going to affect them the most. You need to hit them where it's the most demonstrative of the problems that you're trying to address, because that makes it impossible for people who are reporting on it to ignore not just what you're doing, but the the, the reason and the consequences of what you're doing as right. well. Yeah, absolutely. And this expansion makes the strike truly nationwide now, uh, with the 5,000 additional workers who will be striking from Washington to Florida, from San Diego to Mansfield, Massachusetts. There will now be UAW workers on strike all over the country, bringing it to a total of 18,000 workers. And that will put GM and Stellantis in a much tougher position. But, and, and this is, again, continuing to show why the UAW is using this strategy. It, by, by giving the bargaining team the ability to constantly ramp up pressure in response to how the companies negotiate, that keeps the UAW in the driver's seat of negotiations rather than letting the company dictate terms. So Stellantis, they're like... They own like Jeep and Chrysler, is that right? Yeah, so during the 2008 bailouts, you may remember Chrysler getting largely purchased by Fiat and becoming Fiat Chrysler. So that was the result of the 2008 uh, bailout where Chrysler basically fell apart and had to be rescued by Fiat, the Italian auto giant. Uh, And then subsequently in recent years, there was a merger between the Fiat Auto Group, which contained Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, all that stuff. Uh, and uh, the, the, I believe the Peugeot group in, in France, they merged to become, I think, the fourth biggest auto manufacturer in the world and the new name for this giant holding company that has all these both American and European brands is called okay. Stellantis. Oh, but we've been saying it wrong because it's French, so it's like Stellantis. Stellantis? Well it's, <laughs> well, it's French and Italian, so like, I don't know. <laughs> It's also me. Re- I, I also simply do not respect them enough to learn how to pronounce it correctly. Yeah, fair enough. Stellantis um. nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so now, meanwhile, as the strike continues to ramp up, uh, the corporate press has basically f- fallen all over itself to attack the UAW for striking. Uh, all sorts of pearl clutching stupid op-eds in outlets like the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and perhaps less surprisingly, Fortune Magazine. No, not Fortune. Uh, (laughs) When you've lost Fortune, you've lost the country. Uh, And so there's all these op-eds that have been published that have all tried to take the union to task for being unreasonable. And frankly, I wouldn't have it any other way. Like, because, no, because, like, look, we talk so much on this show about, like, the the mainstream press is not going to be on our side because of who they're owned by. It's a structural problem. Like these are all owned by giant corporations who don't want unions to do well because that cuts into their profit margins. And so honestly, the fact that there's such a a vehement response from the press, I I think is a good demonstration of how scared they are by the strike tactic because it's clearly having an impact. And, you know, 
It's also, I think, an indication that they are really worried about their ability to control the narrative around this strike because poll after poll after poll, whether by More Perfect Union, whether by CNN, whether by some shitty right-wing outlet, have found that the massive majority of Americans fully support the UAW with polls showing anywhere between 60 and 75% of Americans supporting the UAW, which I think is probably the highest percentage of Americans you can get to support literally anything. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, when, uh, when when you poll Americans on whether or not they like hot dogs, you get like a seventy-two percent yes. <laughs> yeah, and we're even seeing two-to-one support among Republicans for the workers in this case. So, like, uh, I don't think a few shitty op-eds from, <laughs> from like a bunch of billionaires are going to change people's minds. And Sean Fain in his uh, in his live stream specifically called out the president of GM for writing an op-ed criticizing the strike. And I think there's, he had a line that I thought was, was brilliant. And I, I think we can insert the quote here and then I'll just read the quote um, where, you know, he responded to the op-ed that the president of GM wrote saying, quote, this week, the president of GM wrote an op-ed about how supposedly great the wages are for 85% of their workers. We fight for 100% of our Let's members. Let's fucking go. Fain really said, those are rookie numbers. You got to pump those numbers up. <laughs> well, and it's because it, this is one of the things that has been so cathartic to me, at least, about this strike. Because, you know, we have company bosses say shit like that all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, 85% of our workers love their wages. And it's just like to anybody, the first thing that should pop in your head is like 80. What about the other yeah. 15%? Mm-hmm. Like, first off, I don't believe you on the 85% because that's just not true. But, but even if I gave you that you're admitting 15% of your workers are not paid enough money at the company you run. <laughs> Look, like, 70% of the time it works every time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's 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 wild. And so at the same time that the press has been screeching about the strike, the Republicans have been trying to respond to the strike and boy has it been a shit show. <laughs> uh you know, we've had arch reactionaries and viciously anti-union senators like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio have been coming out a- attempting to imply that they support the workers without ever actually praising the union or any of its demands or any of the issues they're fighting over. It's just, we support the workers against the corporate elites like Joe Biden and the Sunrise Movement. <laughs> like that's been their basic tech. There's been this attempt to try and Adam Johnson's been doing a really great job writing about this, about how and about how the press is enabling this by just treating just reporting what they say without interrogating it, where they'll come out and say, "We support workers fighting against Joe Biden's green jobs agenda." And it's like that's yeah, the, not the unions what are fighting, fighting those woke uh auto companies and they're trying to give the cars pronouns yeah. and stuff. Uh, they're trying to turn the freaking carburetors gay. <laughs> I don't know. It's, that's I, that's I, I the level of discourse. I, I want to do like a different joke about what they, they think, only have. What the they're one. pretending the problem is, but there's it's been the same thing for twenty years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Rubio said on Twitter, "Quote: Auto strike is driven in large part by a radical climate agenda that seeks the end of gas-powered cars, even if it means destroying American jobs." Nobody is further on the forefront of green industry than labor unions. You ask mm-hmm. labor unions, they're like, yeah, as soon as we get this contract hammered out, we'd love to stop breaking the planet. That'd be awesome. 
Well, and like, like, look, there are the individual cases. Like, I've had some criticisms in the past of specific cases sure. where, like, you know, the building trades unions will sometimes, you know, support a, a policy that's bad because it would temporarily create some construction jobs. But, but A, that's not what we're talking about. And B, in this specific case, the union has been extremely clear that they do not in any way oppose the transition to green jobs. Far from it. They support the expansion of electric vehicle production as long as those jobs are good union jobs, as all jobs should be. There has been at no point that the UAW has come out against the transition to electric vehicles. They, every single time they have been extremely clear, they're happy to support the expansion of EVs, even though, you know, Marxist aside, that really what we need is, you know, public transportation. But, <laughs> but regardless, they've said over and over again, happy to build more battery plants they just have to be plants that don't super exploit their workers like the plants we have now yeah well and and, and they're also looking over at what's happening at like tesla and rivian and stuff and they're saying like we're not we will not do that business model <laughs> we'll make we'll right. make evs safely and for good money but yeah and one thing that I really have appreciated, though, about the UAW in this is they're not just pushing back rhetorically on this, but also, you know, when they get the chance, trying to trying to actually make it hurt because, uh, you know, GOP senator uh, from North Carolina and presidential candidate Tim Scott made perhaps the biggest single mistake of the Republicans in responding to this when he was at a campaign event uh, lauding the incredible labor record of uh, Ronald Reagan and saying how great it was that he crushed the PATCO strike and, and said that his policy would be quote, you strike, you're fired, end quote. Now, the problem with him saying that <laughs> is that Tim Scott is an employer because he is a presidential candidate, which means he is the employer of his staff on his campaign. And that since he's an employer, saying that his policy is that if you strike, you're fired, that is a textbook illegal threat from an employer. And so in response to that, on Thursday, September 21st, the UAW filed a ULP charge with the NLRB on behalf of Scott's employees. And so, you know, while even if this goes through the system, the punishment would just be like a cease and desist. And maybe Tim Scott would have to like read a, a letter saying that he won't say stuff like that. I just love the fact that the UAW is just like, yeah, I know this ULP isn't really going to do much, but fuck them. Fuck this guy. <laughs> this, we can do this, and it's not that big a lift for us, so fuck it. Yep. Hit him with so the ULP I assume they're, they're like, you want to catch a stray, Tim Scott? That's fine. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> I assume that his employees aren't UAW. Can anybody file a... No. Can anybody file a ULP charge against... Yes. Oh, awesome. No, well, yeah, now can, I know what I'm shit, doing. Shit, I got to make I some phone calls lottery. later. Hold, hold on. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to become that scene from King of the Hill where Dale Gribbles at like the DMV or whatever, and he's like, I'm unemployed and I have a three line phone. I'm your worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, people can file ULPs on behalf of other workers. Nice. And so the UAW is stepping Hell up yeah. here, which is really great. And of course, we can't talk about, you know, the Republican response and the media circus around it. Without talking about uh the our our big wet former president, uh <laughs> Uh, Durndal term. <laughs> Everyone's favorite front half of a centaur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, it's 2023, and the the corporate media still just cannot report about Trump. They they don't. They, it is it is like the jangling keys in front of them 
every single time they fall for it without fail. And it's, you know, sometimes I do think it is just people generally being stupid. And then of course there's the people pushing uh, the line for their own purposes because a whole bunch of outlets have been repeatedly implying or outright stating that Trump has given his support to the auto workers, uh, which is not true. Like it's simply a lie. <laughs> uh, he has repeatedly attacked all unions, including the UAW and the current leadership of the UAW. And, and his, he has announced, a plan to hold a campaign rally in Michigan, but far away from the strike lines with no union members and no statement of support for any of the union's demands. And yet this continues to be portrayed as Trump is having a, a rally with UAW workers. It's like, that's not true. <laughs> My brother in Christ, it is literally at Kid Rock's house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, the thing with the... And- yeah, it's like, oh, well, you know who else? These these strikes are bad. You know who else likes the strikes? Donald Trump. It's like, well, who's next? It's like, that's exactly these strikes, what they're doing. You know, who, uh, you know who else likes these strikes? Putin and Xi. We're about, we're, <laughs> I mean, that's next week. I, that, I guarantee it. Yeah, you, yeah. No, seriously. And, and actually, that's actually been a part of Trump's attacks on the UAW, where he's like, oh, the UAW supporting these, these, the Biden electric cars, and those are all going to be made in China. And it's, it, it's, it, As incoherent as it is wrong. (laughs) The UAW wants to resurrect Tito and make Yugos in Michigan. (laughs) Hell yes. I I support this endeavor. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, like with many of these things, Sean Fain has responded with a really good statement, uh, you know, putting this shit in a much better uh, perspective, uh, responding to these claims about Trump and his supposed support for the workers, saying, quote, Every fiber of our union is being poured into fighting the billionaire class and an economy that enriches people like Donald Trump at the expense of workers. We can't keep electing billionaires and millionaires that don't have any understanding what it is like to live paycheck to paycheck and struggle to get by and expect them to solve the problems of the working class, end quote. Which, that's fucking great. Cause it, and, and I think it's important to point out, like, He's just stating the fact because, you know, one of the things is difficult, you know, because I'm sure there are Trump supporters in the UAW and supporters of Sean Fain who are also Trump supporters. As we talked about so many times, people have eclectic consciousness and, you know, the U.S. ideological apparatus works real hard to keep it that way. Especially in Michigan. (laughs) So, you know, rather than being like, nobody in the union supports Donald, like trying to make a statement like that, that of course the libs would go wild for. He just lays it out there like, look, this motherfucker doesn't care about workers. Like we're here fighting for the working class and the issues that matter for us. And that's really ultimately what the strike is about. Not any of these fucking distractions. Yeah. Which is a really great angle to take. I mean, you don't even have to be a socialist, I guess, to, to be like, look, I don't care if they're a fucking red, red conservative or a blue liberal, they are bosses. They are the ruling class, mm-hmm. and that's it. That's who. It's my responsibility to fight against them on your behalf, period, full stop. Yeah, which is very refreshing mm-hmm. <laughs> to see from a major union president in the U.S. Um, Sean Fain said, Chuck Yarlow. And, so, <laughs> <laughs> and we did uh, actually get a response from the White House on this, uh, I will say, on Friday after saying little but platitudes uh, about wanting the strike to be ended quickly. President Biden was forced by public pressure to announce that he will visit the picket line next Tuesday in Michigan to support the UAW workers, which is supposedly like the first time in at least a century that a president has visited a picket line. And like, I guess that's cool. Like, I would rather he like do that than like show up to GM's headquarters and be like, fuck the workers or like pull a or I invoke Taft Hartley or something. But I I think it's really important to point out that 
this doesn't change anything about Biden's fundamental antagonism towards union. And this is an entirely politically driven calculation. And what ultimately I really think it is and where it should be understood is a reflection of the power of the current labor movement that this motherfucker who doesn't actually care about unions and has only ever like made up this idea that he's like a, the most pro union president in history for a purely opportunistic reasons is really worried <laughs> that he might lose Michigan because of the fact that he hasn't done jack shit for workers. And so he's like, fuck, I guess I do got to show up and, and pretend I give a shit about and, this. And play out that scene from Sailor Moon where he walks away saying, my job here is done. And we all look at yeah. him and go, but you didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I, really, I, I do think ultimately what it, this, that is is a testament to the unity and power that the UAW is showing right now. But... More importantly than any of the bullshit claims of support from most U.S. politicians, there have, with some exceptions, there have been some folks who showed up from day one and have supported the UAW. I don't want to pretend that's not true. But more importantly, we've been seeing tons of real support from the working class pour in to UAW uh, locals around the, the country since the strike launched. Numerous other unions, like, of course, the Teamsters, fellow UAW members from academia have joined the picket lines in solidarity, among many other workers. I've seen, like, Starbucks Workers United members on the picket lines, tons of them. And But one of the things that's also been super cool is that support has been international as well, with Brazil's President Lula and his Minister of Labor, Luis Marinho, uh, visiting the UAW offices in New York to show their solidarity with the striking workers while in town for the UN General Assembly. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I mean, they, um, I, I know that a lot of people don't necessarily put a ton of stock in this, but they are both former workers um, themselves. Yeah, yeah Lula, he was, Lula a was a lathe operator. Yeah, he was a union, big mm -hmm. union organizer yeah and he, he was a lathe operator before that and um his labor minister was an assembly line worker so he yeah. precisely what the uaw it typically is yeah and and the president of sao paulo's metal workers union also sent a video message of solidarity saying your fight is our fight and mexican auto workers have shown their solidarity as well with uh, dozens of them protesting outside the corporate offices of gm in mexico city in support of the UAW workers. Hell yeah. And also, which is so crucial, not related to the UAW really at all either, but there were some, there was an organization in, in I believe New York that was protesting the blockade on Cuba and Miguel Diaz Canel fucking showed up and talked into a microphone, <laughs> which yeah, was pretty was cool. The, the, the people's forum. People's yeah. forum. Right. Yes. Um, and so, like, it's been really awesome to see all the support coming in. There was, uh, in in his live stream, you know, announcing the expansion of the strike, uh, Sean Fain also shouted out striking Stellantis workers in Italy who are also on strike right now. And so it's been, it's been really great because, like, with these globalized supply chains, that's the only way you can fundamentally really go after these companies is by uniting the struggle of these workers in all these different countries. Otherwise, they can just play us off against each other. And so, you know, just to round this out uh, for listeners who want to support the strike, uh, the options for doing so in person are now much, much greater than they were last week. Because now you have, you know, over 40 plants, you know, in over 20 states across the country on strike. So, you know, 
while you may not have been close to one of the, one of the striking plants last week, you probably are now. Um, so definitely check out that list of struck shops. It's in basically every article about this, but also specifically if you go to labor notes, they've got it in their most recent, uh, article updating on the strike that has a full list of all the, uh, big three locations, including the one specifically they're on strike at all these parts distribution centers. So of course we encourage, you know, if there's a striking plant near you or, a plant that's not on strike, but is hosting, you know, community rallies, practice pickets, that sort of thing. Definitely recommend folks go out there. I know there's a uh, plant, there's a parts distribution center in Mansfield, Massachusetts, which is one of the places that just went on strike. So I definitely, so it's it's a little bit, little drive from here, but I definitely uh, am hoping that I'm going to be able to get out there uh, at some point in the next uh, week or two and show some support. But yeah, definitely recommend if folks can can show up in person, we highly encourage that. And also if the strike lasts for a while, uh, definitely be on the lookout because striking locals will issue donation requests uh, for stuff that people need. Oftentimes things like diapers where it's just like, you know, uh, things that are expensive, but everybody's got to have. Uh, because and so be on the lookout for those because that is a really good way to help the workers stretch their strike fund even further and be able to keep folks out on the line longer. Hell yeah. Well, um, speaking of uh, helping folks out and keeping them out on the line, <laughs> stuff you could bring to striking workers, we suggest that you print out a large stack of memes and bring them along <laughs> with whatever coffee or treats or, or diapers you might be bringing to these workers. And since I did a My Brother in Christ joke already on this episode, I will read the first meme, which is your classic Subway sandwich My Brother in Christ format. And it says, dudes be like billionaires deserve their wealth because they got it legally. My Brother in Christ, they made the laws. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like the the legalism argument has always been just so bankrupt to me because you could literally replace billionaires with slave owners. They right. also made their wealth legally, whatever the fuck that means. Well, yeah, I mean, I've heard, I've seen this argument for so many other things. Like, I got I got in an argument with uh, somebody at work last week uh, because he was just like on this stupid right wing rant to somebody else in the office about how there's all these illegals destroying the country, blah, 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 you know, all that sort of bullshit. And I was, and I was like, that's not true. And also like anybody has a right to be here. I, cause I, and I pointed out, I'm like, buddy, my family's been here for 400 years. And if anybody came here illegally, it was them. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, you got no right to fucking tell those people like not to come in here. And it's this, it's the, the legal, they're like, oh, well, you know, that's different. That was a long Their time skin ago. Was the right it color. was legal. And just like, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the real thing. But, but yeah. it's just like, yeah, the legalism argument is so stupid. It's like, you know what else was legal? Uh, slavery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, and it's like when you, whenever you have someone just, who, I mean, I see this a lot with like dudes, uh, dating like younger women. It's like, well, it's technically, uh, not illegal. It's like, okay, the great. <laughs> what do you yeah. want me to say, man? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Everybody Leo, it's, still it's still weird that, here. you know, you keep getting older and your girlfriends are all the same. Always Russell the same. Brandes. Yeah. <laughs> so our next one is a, uh, classic, uh, weaponized apathy style of, uh, <laughs> Digital you know, 80s video game cover throwback. Uh, you've got like this wireframe with a big glowing pulse in space in the background. This is what William Gibson made me think the internet was going to look like. <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you've got like 
planes and spheres, like all intersecting and all very 1984 era, like a uh, video game cover. And it's make your working day more fun with time theft. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Read leftist theory, shitpost, daydream, make memes. And then there's what looks like a half torn off sticker on it. That's stamped minimum wage means minimum effort. That's right. I don't even make minimum wage. I make considerably over, like I have a good, bad job. You know what I mean? Like for, for being a shitty job that doesn't pay good, it pays all right. And I still, I still have a Tuesday appointment. Every Tuesday I sit down on the same toilet and I don't get up for an hour and a half, whether or not I had to use that bathroom (laughs) in the first place. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's minimum effort in solidarity with people who make minimum wage. Correct. (laughs) So the next one, which I put in here mostly because I've been very mad about all the liberals trying to gaslight people into thinking how great Bidenomics is doing in the economy. (laughs) And so this is a, a tweet from, uh, from Josh Kaplan. Uh, and it's just, it's a picture of somebody holding keys up in front of like a, a small courtyard going into an apartment building. And it's captioned, very excited to announce that after foregoing small joys, working hard and never going on holiday, I'm now continuing to rent for even more money than before. <laughs> you just know looking at that apartment in that because of the like the little wrought iron gate and the checkered thing leading in, that that's, that's like $3,000 a month right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I saw a, a a post from somebody who just summed it up. They're they're just like, in 2022, my rent was eighteen hundred and fifty dollars. It's now twenty three hundred and fifty dollars. Like, how am I living outside my means? They just upped the rent for no fucking reason. Yeah, in in two thousand and fucking. 13 I started renting a three bedroom apartment in the outskirts of Pittsburgh for $650 a month. It was a whole house, not an apartment. It was a whole house, three bedroom house, $650 a month. And I wow. think I saw it go up on the market recently or like the house next to it for like 1850, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and and notably, no one no workers wages tripled in that time. <laughs> oh no, man, you're lucky if they went up 10%. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Much to think about. Much to think about. Well, our next one, okay, we have an IRL loading screens. These are these are the Elder Scrolls games, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have never played an Elder Scrolls game. I'm just that's just one of the things I never bought into. But I know who's in this one. This is Drew Barrymore <laughs> doing her little apology video in the classic normal looking room of her house. <laughs> she looks like she's about to cry, which is awesome. I love that. <laughs> and it says, uh, cyberbullying a traitor to your faction can get them to reverse their actions, which is like one give a Midwesterner a rhyme, we're all over it. Uh, And two, like, it's so funny how well this worked. Like, Drew Barrymore is a great example, but, like, Bill Maher, to me, is the shocking example because I thought for sure he was going to just full steam ahead no matter Mm -hmm. what. Doesn't matter if the show sucks. Who cares who watches it? Yeah. Yeah, no shame. So, that's yeah, I was was shocked by that one as well. (laughs) And so... Our last one, you know, to, to fit with our uh, close out with a wholesome meme one, uh, it's just a, a picture of basically a, a cat, and it's like a it's a little clip art, uh, like word art style of uh, drawing there, where it's a little cat in a business attire sitting at a at a at a desk with a, a computer with a frowny face on it, <laughs> and then it's just captioned, "You were not put on this planet." To sit at an office bored for 40 hours a week helping a corporation make profit. No. If you're ever bored on the computer, it should be on your own time and your needs should already have been taken care of. That's right. 
Absolutely. Hell yeah. Don't uh, so don't do a fake computer job. Uh, go out. Go out and work with your hands to make forty hours to help a corporation make profit. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I know. No. I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> It, it it does always make me think of that what I what I always love that that rock meme that is like originally it's like a hustle and grind meme yeah yeah but they chop off the second part of it because he's like it, where it would say like don't oh, work yeah. eight hours yes. for a company that doesn't <laughs> believe in your net worth and it cuts off the bottom it just says don't work eight hours for a company. <laughs> that's right like, that's yes, right that's correct Wayne nailed it nailed it <laughs> all right well. Uh, <laughs> that wraps up the meme review so uh, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Work Stoppage as I said before we're an entirely listener supported show so supporting us on Patreon is really the best thing you can do for us it goes a really long way hop in the discord if you're not in there already leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think it will help tell the world how appreciative you are that Ethan comes on the show when we're missing a host and uh, you, right. you can follow us all on Twitter uh, and go to our website workstoppagepod.com right or is it just workstoppage.com workstoppagepod.com and uh, you can find everything there so as always uh, labor peace is not in our interest solidarity forever and we love you goodbye (laughs) solidarity everybody
like, hey, your thing says you have free COVID tests. They're like, yeah, give us your insurance. And I gave them the insurance. And the insurance that I have is specifically, it's like a partnership with CVS. And I, and they, they, they spend like 20 minutes like running through their system to come back and be like, yeah, this not covered. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? It's like CVS insurance. How can, and it says on your sign that you have them. Mm-hmm. How can it not be covered? <laughs> it's deranged. My, my wife so. put me on her insurance and we've tried to look up a couple of specialist doctors. We've tried to find, you know, good personal care providers within our actual insurance coverage. And you call their offices and you're like, hi, we have such and such coverage. Here's our, you know, policy number. Here's everything. Uh, we, we, opted for like the second best insurance tier that was available through her workplace, whatever. And like half the time they're like, yeah, we have no idea if we take this, we'll call you back in 48 hours. And it's like, (laughs) what if I'm dying? (laughs) Then perish. (laughs) Like the thing, one of the, this is one of the things I never understand is that like everyone agrees the system is fucked (laughs) except seemingly like, doctors you go on dr tiktok <laughs> and th- there are doctors whose entire bit is just making fun of how damaged the healthcare system is but it's like tiktok every single one of them is like eh, it's my job though <laughs> like <laughs> shit yeah i mean like i think you know this horrific abomination of a medical system was cobbled together like out of the fever dreams of the american medical association throughout the 20th century but it, even within doctors i feel like there's a like the class of doctors, there's a there are tiers. Like yeah, sure. Like you've got the I don't and yeah. and I don't really know who's at the top. I just, I mean, Doctor Eggman, <laughs> whoever they hired for the CDC. I guess yeah, because most of the doctors I've talked to are also like, yeah, it's not great. Listen, um, but like and but I assume that they have to be making like someone's got to be benefiting from this, right? Besides <laughs> Pfizer and. Uh, I mean, the insurance companies are doing great. That's but. true. That's true. Oh. <laughs> and, and don't forget, medical technology manufacturers, those company owners are also doing very well. Well, yeah, and actually, I can definitely speak to that because, like, Massachusetts is one of the hubs of biotech and medical technology companies. And, like, when I was looking for work, you know, before I got my job this year, it's, like, 70% of, like, the technical job listings Ugh. in this area are, like – come work for this biotech firm. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that, but I'll look into your thing. And they're like, we're making new stuff to help augment the performance of American soldiers in defense. And it's all, it's all, it's all fucking military tech. It's, Uh. it's that, or it's like, we're designing, you know, gold plated hip replacements that can only be afforded by people with yachts like that. Those are like the two kinds of medical device companies. I encounter. Yeah. You you can either make Peter Thiel's fake hair, or you can make the stim pack from Starcraft so we can win (laughs) in Iran. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, those are the the two options for technical employees in the U.S. I'm just like, can I like work on that like diabetes vaccine that yeah. like Cuba and Brazil are gonna make? Because I know that's actual medicine, not medical technology. But still, I'm just like, that seems like useful and good, unlike all mm-hmm. the stuff that we're doing, which seems not useful and also bad. Well, it's yeah. like I'm in this fucking coding boot camp and I'm looking at a lot of the kinds of like job prospects that are going to be available to me when I get out of it. And it is like a lot of it is defense. A lot of it is like, <laughs> do you want to help the police with cybersecurity right. or maintain their servers or whatever? But there is like a nice little chunk, like like 15 to 20 percent of jobs where it's just like we have very old servers 
and we have a very new website and they don't talk to each other good. Can you make them talk to each other good? And I'm like, this doesn't feel totally evil. I could probably do this. Yeah. <laughs> and then you look at the new website with the old servers and it's for the... Uh, for, it's um, for the Des Moines Landlords Association. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's just it's Reddit. For... I'm just working for Reddit. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you get that. You finally get the coveted job maintaining the back end for Craigslist. Thank um, God they hired me. No, but there's one last thing about one last thing about medical technology because I was thinking about it. Is that so? I got a uh, CPAP machine. Hey, a- welcome to the club. APAP, yeah, recently, <laughs> and the I mean, it's one ludicrously expensive, and mm-hmm. but it, the other part is that like, uh, it hooks up to like bluetooth and the wi-fi and it has to call home to the insurance company because mine doesn't do that oh okay yeah well i mean (laughs) i've i have i think i'm basically like made a faraday cage around it so i can't but like (laughs) at the beginning but at the beginning it was like the insurance company called the sleep clinic i was going through and they were like hey uh he's not using it enough to justify us paying for it and i was like this is dystopian as fuck. Why does the insurance Jesus. company need to know how much I'm using, like how many hours that's, a night I'm using your fucking machine? That's it so fucked up. It, it's so you don't die while you're sleeping. It's not a fucking Fitbit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because yeah. like mine, even mine has an app, and I even that I was just like, why are you? Who are you phoning this info to? And then, and then I was just like, well, I also don't care. Like, <laughs> oh my god, I had to. I I spent fucking thirty minutes going through the user manual and combing over the entire body of the machine with my fingers to find the fucking USB port that they hid in my printer because I don't <laughs> want to print over Wi-Fi. <laughs> oh, I saw I saw a uh, post someone had made that was like a recent model of printer that they're like, no, it's wireless only, and it's still the same model. So there is a USB port, but they just put a little sticker over it on the back. <laughs> Hell yeah! Yeah, there was a there was a little rubber plug over mine that made it look like it was kind of a natural part of the design surface. You just Ugh. pop that thing out, and there's a USB port. Capitalism there. encourages innovation. USB B, by the way, the USB B, the gold standard since two thousand and one. Oh my god.